Over the last several weeks, we have given careful consideration to the final words of Jesus from the cross in a sermon series entitled, The Seven Last Words. Today we come to the sixth statement of Jesus. I invite you to take a Bible and turn to the gospel according to John, chapter 19, verse 30. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. John chapter 19, I'll be reading verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Heavenly Father, we stand before you and our prayer is simple. Help me to preach. May the word of your sermon be found not only on the lips of the preacher, but also on the ears of the hearer. We're asking not just for information, nor are we just asking for inspiration. But our prayer today is one of transformation by the power of the Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There is not a more power-packed phrase in all the Bible than this statement found on the lips of Jesus. It is finished. We live in a world of unfinished business. We have loose ends to tie, endless deadlines to fulfill, we have numerous things that we give our attention to and never enough time in the day to do all the things that we think we need to do. Yet on this day, Jesus said, it is finished. It's a statement of completion. It's a statement of victory. It's a statement of satisfaction. It is finished. This powerful phrase demands a legitimate question. What is the it that is finished? Jesus says, it is finished. What is the it that is finished? Some have speculated and suggested that Jesus is declaring that his suffering is finished. And certainly the suffering that Jesus endured on the cross was horrific. It was C.H. Spurgeon, that great prince of preachers, who said, I never fear exaggeration when I talk about all that my Jesus experienced on the cross. It was Cicero, that first century Roman philosopher, who said that of crucifixion, it was the grossest, cruelest, most hideous form of execution. Last week, we itemized some of the physical suffering that Jesus endured. It started, according to Dr. Luke, the night before, when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is praying with such earnest that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. As he peered into the cup of wrath of God, he said, Is it possible to let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done? It was on this night that Jesus was arrested. He was turned over to the Roman authorities. He endured an all-night barrage of beatings, interrogations, and mock trials. It was early in the morning when Pontius Pilate gave the execution orders. 
Jesus was taken and he experienced an excruciating whipping called a Roman scourging. At the end of that, his body was just a bloodied, mangled mess of flesh, exposed tissue, ligaments, and tendons. Jesus was weak as an infant, and yet he had to carry his own cross through the city streets of Jerusalem, up the skull-shaped hill called Galgotha. There, the Roman soldiers stretched him wide and raised him high. They nailed him to a cross. He was in excruciating physical pain. He was enduring dehydration and fighting suffocation. Ultimately, he gave way to heart failure, and the Son of Man died. Certainly, The physical suffering of Jesus was about to come to a close. And certainly the physical suffering of Jesus was excruciating. And while it's true that everything that Jesus physically endured was grotesque, his spiritual suffering was exponentially more horrific. Because for the first time ever, never to be repeated again in eternity future, for the first time ever, there was a splintering and severing between the Trinitarian relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Jesus was taking upon himself the punishment that you deserve and I deserve. He was drinking every last drop of holy hostility and divine condemnation that should be poured out against us. It was being poured out against Jesus, the one who knew no sin, but came sin for us. And while Jesus was on the cross, God was reconciling a world of lost sinners unto himself, not counting men's sins against them, but against him being the Christ. So that eventually Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a very real way, there was a God forsakenness that took place at the cross where God the Father turned his head away from God the Son so that God may turn his face toward you and me. The physical pain of Jesus, it was enormous, but the spiritual pain was horrific. So it could be stated that when Jesus makes this bold, powerful declaration, it is finished, he could be saying, my suffering is finished. It's also been suggested what Jesus means is that the prophecy is finished. Certainly in the Old Testament, there are nearly 400 prophecies of Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of every single one. Jesus is not only the author of Scripture, but he is the subject of Scripture. So that my father in the ministry, Robert Smith, says that the Bible is not so much about the plan of salvation as it is about the man of salvation, Jesus the Christ. So we find Jesus from the first book to the last book, from Genesis to Revelation. As early as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we find the necessity of the crucifixion of the man named Jesus. For following the sinful fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, it is God who comes into the garden And yes, he disciplines Adam and Eve, but he curses the serpent. He says to our adversary, the devil himself, God says to him, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will bite or strike his heel. And certainly that is a prophetic utterance of what took, what takes place at Calvary. For at Calvary, Satan, uh, nipped Jesus at the heel. He inflicted some pain, but certainly through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Jesus gave a fatal blow to the adversary and he crushed his head. And he is victorious over all things, sin, death, hell, and the grave. We find this as early as Genesis chapter three, verse 15. 
And this thread of redemption is woven throughout every fabric of scripture, even till you get to the very end, the book of Revelation. It is there that we discover this man named Jesus. He is the one who's worthy of all praise. He is worthy of honor and worship and adoration. And John describes him in this way in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. Behold the Lamb of God who was slain before the very foundation of the world. That even in Revelation chapter 13, this Jesus who is the mighty redeemer of humanity, he is portrayed as a living sacrifice lamb. All throughout the Bible, there are prophecies of who Jesus is and how he's going to come. And he is the fulfillment of all of them, nearly 400. Now, I don't have the time to itemize all 400 prophecies. Can I get an amen? Thank you, Jesus. But I do have time just to articulate a handful of them. It is Micah, the prophet, who says he'll be born in Bethlehem. It is Hosea, the prophet, who declares that he'll be called out of Egypt. For out of Egypt, I have called my son. It is Isaiah who who says that he will be born of a virgin. He will die as a suffering servant, for he'll be numbered with the transgressors. It is David, in very prophetic fashion, in Psalm 22, who says this one named Jesus will be executed a criminal's death by crucifixion. He'll be placed into a borrowed tomb, and he will be raised back to life. All throughout the scripture, you find numerous examples of the fulfillment and the prophecies of Jesus. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it at every point. So certainly some have said that when Jesus makes this bold declaration, it is finished. What he's saying is the prophecy is finished. I am the fulfillment of all things foretold. And certainly Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. When I think about this bold statement of it is finished, yes, I agree that his suffering is finished. And yes, I agree that the prophecy is finished. But ultimately, ultimately what I think Jesus is declaring is the atoning work of redemption is finished. I think ultimately that's what Jesus is saying. He is saying that ultimately, faithfully and fully, that the work of redemption is finished. The goal of incarnation has now been made complete. In other words, Jesus is saying, mission accomplished. His goal is given to us in Luke chapter 19 when Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That divine purpose and mission is further fleshed out in John chapter 10 when Jesus says, I have come to give life more abundant and free. It is Paul who says to his son of the ministry, Timothy, that Jesus came to save sinners. The way he does that is that he has to die in our place because God's standard is perfection. We have to be perfect in order to stand in front of God because God is holy and righteous and perfect himself. And so we have to be perfect. But the problem is none of us are perfect. No one is righteous. No, not one. It only takes one sin for God to label us as a sinner. We only have to break one law to be labeled as a lawbreaker. And the consequences of breaking God's divine law is eternal condemnation. Now, if that sounds harsh to you, let me just remind you of an illustration that I heard from our good friend, David Platt. David was telling the story that he was in a foreign country. He was witnessing to a cab driver 
That cab driver was having a very difficult time putting his mind around the concept that God, who is supposed to be a loving, good God, would allow somebody to go to an eternal place called hell where all the punishment and condemnation is meted out simply because a person made one mistake. And David said to the cab driver, let me ask you a couple of questions. Number one, if I were to slap you in the face right now, what would be the consequences? And he said, I would kick you out of my cab. Okay, if I were to slap that police officer in the face right over there, what would be the consequences? And he said, you'd be thrown in jail. Okay, if I somehow gained an audience with your earthly king and I went up to him and slapped him in the face, what would the consequences be? And the cab driver said, you would die. He said, okay. He said, when you sin, it is a slap in the face of God Almighty. So what do you think the consequences ought to be? The cab driver was silent. My friends, God is not being harsh. God is being just. In his justice, penalty for sin has to be paid. In his justice, penalty for your sin has to be paid. Penalty for my sin has to be paid. And either you will pay for your sin in a very real place called hell for all of eternity, or you will accept what the perfect substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, has done on your behalf. Because it would require the perfect death of the perfect substitute to die for the sin of imperfect people. And so because God is just, he demands that penalty for sin must be paid. God cannot sweep it under the carpet. Yet because God is gracious, he says, I'll make the penalty payment for you. Because he is gracious, he says, I'll send my son, your savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus will die in your place. He will secure your redemption. He will take upon himself all of God's holy hostility towards your sin and mine, and Jesus will do it ultimately and completely to the point that he declares it is finished. The atoning work of redemption is done. This concept is what calls Horatio Spafford to explode in praise when he says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Because God, in that divine moment, placed all of your iniquity, past, present, and future, squarely upon the shoulders of Jesus and Jesus took it all upon himself and then he could declare, it is finished. I realize that in English is a three-word phrase. It is finished. In the ancient text, it's one word, tetelestai. Tetelestai is a power-packed word. It was a very common word. It was a word that had a full range of meaning. And I want to submit to you this morning that Jesus intended every nuance of the word when he declared to Telestai, it is finished. It was a word that was spoken by a servant on a farm. It was a word that was spoken by a judge in a courthouse. It was a word that could be spoken by an accountant in the office. It was a word that could be spoken by an artist in his studio. It was a word that could be spoken by a victorious military general. It was a word that had a, a wide range of meanings. And I submit to you that Jesus meant every nuance. 
It was a word that was spoken by a servant. When the servant received the instructions from the master and the servant completed the to-do list and when the job and the task had been completed, he would go back to his master and he would say to Telestai. In other words, I got her done. It is finished. The task is completed. I have done what you sent me out to do. When Jesus makes this statement to Telestai, he is saying to the father, listen, I've done what you've asked me to do. The mission is now completed. In John chapter four, it is Jesus who says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That word finish is the same word. It's the, it's, it's the, it's the word to telestai. It, it is to finish his work. Jesus is declaring that the work is done. The task is completed. To telestai, it is finished. It's a word that could be spoken by a judge. Once the sentence had been served, once the punishment had been meted out, the judge would then declare to Telestai, it is finished. When Jesus died on the cross, what he's saying is that he has served your eternal sentence for you. He has absorbed your condemnation on your behalf. It's Paul who says in Romans chapter 5 that through the one man, being Adam, many were made sinners. Through the obedience of the one man, being the Christ, many were made righteous. It is through our first father, Adam, that we are declared sinners, that we have a rebellious spirit, that we are hostile toward God. Yet it's because of our big brother, Jesus, that Jesus has declared us righteous in God's sight. So when Jesus declared it is finished, it is as if he is a judge who's saying the sentence has been served. Your eternal condemnation has been meted out and poured out against Jesus, that God in some cosmic way took an eternity's worth of condemnation and stuffed it in a few hours, one Friday, in the first century, in the third decade, there on a hill called Calvary. So that James Boyce is exactly right. That Jesus was bearing our hell so that we may share in his heaven. Jesus declares to telestai, meaning it is finished. It's a word that was, it was a word that was spoken by an accountant. When the final payment came in for the bill, the accountant would stamp in the ledger of the books to Telestai. And it would mean paid in full. There's no reason to send another payment because the debt has already been covered. There's no reason to make another payment because the payment is in full. It is to Telestai. It is completed. It's an accounting term. In the very same way, when Jesus declared to Telestai it is finished, what he's saying is, your sin debt has been paid in full. There's nothing you can do to make another payment. It would be ridiculous for you to try to make another payment because the sin debt has been paid fully. Let me ask you this, friends. If tomorrow the mortgage company were to call you and say, you know what? Your mortgage has been paid in full. You don't owe another dime on your house. How would you respond? Yeah, you do more than that. If, <laughs> if the car company 
came and they called you tomorrow and said, hey, listen, your SUV, your truck, the car that's in the driveway, the boat, whatever you got, listen, all of that is paid for. You owe nothing else on any of your vehicles. How would you respond? You'd do more than that. And then (laughs) if the credit card company called you, you know, the Visa, MasterCard, the American Express, the Discovery, all those cards you got in your pocket that you just maxed out. If they were to call you, if they were to say, hey, you no longer have any more credit card debt because it's been paid in full, how would you respond? You would rejoice. All those examples pale in comparison to what Jesus did for you because Jesus is more than a paid off house. Jesus is more than paid off cars. Jesus is more than no credit card debt. Jesus has paid it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him. I owe sin and left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow to tell us it is finished. It's a word that could be spoken by an artist. When that artist pressed the brush against the canvas for the very last time, stood back and looked at the portrait, that artist would say to Telestai, it's completed. It's a masterpiece. You can't add anything to it. If you try to tinker with it, you'll mess it up. It's perfect just the way it is. It's a beautiful piece of art. What Jesus is saying when he declares to Telestai is the portrait of salvation is complete and it's beautiful. You can't add anything to it. You can't enhance it. You can't do a little bit here, do a little bit there to make it a a sweeter masterpiece. It is a masterpiece all in itself. To tell us, it is finished. It is completed. My friend, you are a masterpiece of mercy. Not because of what you've done. Not because of who you are. Not because you try to do more good than bad, hoping that you'll tip the scales in your favor. No, no. You are a masterpiece of mercy because of the work of the master. It's because of the work of the Messiah, for he has brushed against you that final stroke. He has, he has brushed against you that stroke against the canvas of your soul, and he stands back and he says, now that you are saved, now that you're redeemed, now your atoning work is done, to Telestai, you are a masterpiece because of what the master has done to you, through you, and for you. To Telestai, it is finished. It's a word that was spoken by a military general. Once the war was won, the enemy had been subdued and fear was no longer prominent in the people. The general would come back from war, walk up and down the streets and he would declare to Telestai, it is finished. The battle is over. The war has been won. When Jesus declares to Telestai, what he's saying to you is that I have conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. The adversary, the devil himself, is bound. He no longer can strike fear in your life. Why? Because Jesus has fully and completely paid the sin debt. He has decisively defeated the devil. It is to Telestai. It is finished. You have nothing to fear. It is finished. The war has been won. Now the devil tries to tell you that you're finished. But the reality is he's finished. He's like a a chicken with his head cut off. He's jumping around the world like a chicken jumps around the chicken coop. He's acting as if he's alive, yet he's dead. 
He's incarcerated. He's been dealt a fatal blow. The devil tries to minimize your temptation and maximize your condemnation. What I mean by that is this. That whenever temptation comes your way, the devil tries to minimize it. It's not a big deal. Everybody's doing it. And then once the dirty deed is done, he tries to maximize your condemnation by saying, I can't believe you just did that. God is never going to forgive you. God will never love you again because of what you've done. I can't believe you did that. He'll try to minimize the temptation, maximize the condemnation. But because of what Jesus has done, it caused the Apostle Paul to write in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are victorious. If you're in Christ, you are a masterpiece. If you're in Christ, your payment for sin is paid in full. If you are in Christ, you have nothing, absolutely nothing to fear. If you're in Christ, you realize that Jesus, who is the suffering servant, got her done and completed the task. If you are in Christ, you have the freedom to worship God and stand before him in holiness and that the innocence of Christ is now draped all over your life. All of this because of one word to tell us die, it is finished. Jesus packed a lot in one word. After he said that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The word gave up literally means he delivered up. It's a common theme in John's gospel for Jesus has been delivered up to Judas Delivered up to Caiaphas, delivered up to Pilate, delivered up to the Roman soldiers. Yet all the while, Jesus never forfeited his right to call the shots. So in the very end, it is Jesus who has the last word. He then delivers up his spirit. He tells his spirit where to go and when to go. He tells his spirit what to do. He is in charge even to the very last dying breath. So that tells us, beloved, that Jesus is in charge even when there is apparent tragedy. Jesus is in charge even when things look out of control. The Son of God, the Son of Man, is dying a criminal's death. He is declaring it is finished. He's about to bow his head and give up his ghost. And even in that tragic moment, Jesus is still in control. Friend, I'm telling you this morning that Jesus is in control of all of your tragedy. He's in control of your sickness. He's in control of your recurring cancer. He's in control of your uh, failed marriages. He's in control of your prodigal son. He's in control of your wayward daughter. He's in control of your headaches and your heartaches. He's in control of all of your disappointment. He's in control of all things because Jesus is the one who finally says to his spirit, this is where you need to go. This is when you need to go. Jesus delivered up his spirit. It was Rick Warren who tells us that the difference between all world religions and Christianity is the difference between two words. The two words, do, done. All other world religions tell you what you must do in order to get to God. It is only Christianity who tells you what Christ has done so that you may get to God. The difference between do and done. The famous preacher D.L. Moody says that one day he was approached by a frantic, inquisitive bystander. What must I do to be saved? Came the question. The famous preacher looked at this man and said, it's too late. 
It's too late. What do you mean it's too late? Is there no way for me to be saved? What, what do you mean it's too late? And D.O. Moody said, oh, no, no, you can be saved. But you can't do anything to be saved because it's already been done for you. You're too late. Jesus has already paid the price for you. The only thing you can do is accept what's been done for you. Friend, you can accept Jesus, you can reject Jesus, but you cannot ignore him. You gotta do something with him. I would submit to you that it is very advantageous for you to accept what grace offers. It was John R.W. Stott who said the only function of faith is to accept what grace offers. Grace offers you forgiveness and by faith you accept it. Grace offers you redemption and by faith you accept it. Grace offers you life over death and by faith you accept it. You simply trust Jesus and you turn from your sin. I do have one question though. The one lingering lasting question that I have is this. What is the proof that Jesus has the right to say to Telestai? What, what, is the, what is the proof that Jesus has the authority to declare it is finished? I mean, everybody said it is finished. The servant in, on the farm, the judge in the courthouse, the accountant in the office, the artist in the studio, the general as he came home victorious from war. Everybody said to Telestai, what gives Jesus the authority to declare in a cosmic sense, it is finished? I've got a four-word answer. The tomb is empty. I thought you'd get more excited than that. (laughs) How do you know that Jesus can declare upon your life that your sin debt has been paid in full? How can you know that Jesus has said that he has obtained your salvation and the atonement for your sin? How do you know that Jesus is legit? How do you know that Jesus actually makes good on what he proclaims? The reason you know is because the tomb is empty. Luke chapter 9, verse 22, long before the Calvary experience, it's Jesus who said, I must go to Jerusalem and I'll be handed over. I'll be crucified on the third day. I will be raised from the dead. On the third day, on the first day of the week, early in the morning, some of the ladies went to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. They wondered who's going to roll the stone away for us, for it's a massive stone. And when they got there, they were shocked that the stone had already been rolled away and an angel was seated on top of it. The angel asked the question, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He's alive, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, then go and tell his disciples. Friends, this morning I came to tell you that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. The proof of Tetelestai is that Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. Come and see, then go and and tell to Telestai that it is finished. For I serve a risen Savior, and he's in the world today. And I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy, and I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me, and he talks to me a long life's narrow way. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. So life is worth the living just because he lives. 
lives. Today, I want you to know that Jesus has paid your sin debt. Today, I want you to know that Jesus offers you salvation. Today, I want you just to thank him for the atonement that he's given in your life. Today, I just want you to know, to tell us, die, it is finished. So on this day, if you come in here and you did not know how to deal with your sin problem this morning, I just want you to know that Jesus has taken care of it. There's nothing you can do to add to your salvation. The only thing you can do is accept it. We're going to sing. And in this moment, if you need to accept Christ, please come down this aisle. Take one of the ministers by the hand and express your need for salvation. Many of you are believers. I look around the room and I see many faces of people that have been following Christ for years. On this day, just stop and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for taking care of a sin debt that you did not owe because I have a sin debt that I could not pay. So thank you. And regardless, we walk out in the full confidence of Tetelestai because Jesus declares and gives living proof that it is finished. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. We pray that you will move and that we will respond faithfully. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.